Hi everyone, I'm Michael Calori, a senior editor here at Wired, and you are listening to The Gadget Lab. I am here with my co-hosts, Wired senior writer Ariel Pardes. Hello! And Wired senior writer Lauren Good. Hello! Later on in the show, we will be talking to Wired writer Emma Gray Ellis about the rise of the YouTubers union movement. But first, let's get to the news. Let's get to the news. Mark Zuckerberg goes to Washington! Again, and again, uh, on Wednesday of this week, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg faced members of the House Financial Services Committee in Washington, who once again had questions about Facebook's plan to launch a cryptocurrency, which is called Libra. Now, this is coming just three months after the top executive leading Libra, David Marcus, attempted to answer questions as well. Apparently, those were unsatisfactory because legislators then asked Zuckerberg to sit in the hot seat. What's interesting is that some of the questions that were lobbed at Zuckerberg yesterday weren't even about Libra. Uh, (laughs) Shocking. Shocking. I mean, it's really not surprising when you consider the kind of hearings that uh, Facebook has had over the past year. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, for example, asked Zuckerberg questions about Cambridge Analytica and about political misinformation on the platform. Representative Joyce Beatty of Ohio laid into Zuckerberg about Facebook somehow allowing real estate agents to exclude people of color from viewing house listings. So that was uh, a lot of questioning about racial discrimination. And in general, it really became a hearing about the public's distrust of Facebook. Now, when it came to Libra, Zuckerberg tried to stress that Facebook wouldn't launch this cryptocurrency without regulatory approval. He said that Facebook would have limited control over this cryptocurrency because it is decentralized. And he suggested more than once that if the U.S. doesn't innovate in digital payments, China will beat the U.S to it. What did you guys make of this? You know, I didn't watch the whole hearing, but the clips that I did see had absolutely nothing to do with Libra. It seemed like much of the hearing was devoted to questions of Facebook and Zuckerberg's character. There were a couple of accusations of um, Mark Zuckerberg repeatedly lying and Congress people saying, how can we trust you when you talk about this new thing when in the past, you've lied to us over and over again. So I actually have a lot of questions about Libra, (laughs) which I felt like I didn't get (laughs) answers to, like, how are they financing this thing? How is it going to work? How soon is it launching? Um, Did we get answers to that? That is a great question. And since we weren't at the hearings in D.C., but our colleagues Stephen Levy and Greg Barber have been covering this, I thought maybe we could just walk over to Greg, who's in the newsroom here in San Francisco, and ask him a couple questions about this. What do you think? Great idea. All right, let's do it. Hey, Greg, can I ask you a couple quick questions about this Libra hearing yesterday? Sure. Okay, we were just talking about this on the podcast, and I figured you've actually been covering this. What should we make of Zuckerberg's latest appearance in front of legislators? I thought it was really interesting to see the kind of shifting sands of Zuckerberg's defense here. Um, you know, he started off by kind of falling back on this trope that uh, Libra has been putting out from the start, which is that this is all about financial inclusion. Um, we're here for the underbanked around the world. Um, but then pretty quickly, Zuckerberg shifted and honestly kind of fell into the sort of cynicism that I think his audience often has about those sorts of arguments. He says, you know, actually, we're here to make money. Uh, This is actually going to really serve uh, Facebook's platform and diversify um, what we're doing. Um, But instead, he's trying out this new defense, which is about China. Basically, Zuckerberg's argument is that if you don't let Facebook do this, China will. Um, And he points to this announcement that happened right after uh, Libra was announced, um, that China was really close to finishing its uh, own digital currency. So he says, look, they're innovating. They're going to do this anyways. 
don't stop us. Do you feel like legislators were satisfied with Zuckerberg's responses yesterday? No, I mean, one of the most fascinating things actually came really late in in his testimony, um, where a Republican congressman came back and says, look, I'm a huge China hawk. You're basically speaking to me with this argument. But at the same time, I don't understand why why does Facebook have to take the lead on this? you know, why not some other company? Why not the U.S.? Um, so it's interesting to see that, I mean, these Republican congressmen are really his target with this China innovation competition angle. Um, and he wasn't even really getting those people over to his side. So, Greg, David Marcus, who's really leading the Libra initiative for Facebook, was just scrolled a few months ago. Now Mark Zuckerberg's being questioned, but it does seem as though some of the answers were perhaps unsatisfactory. Do you think it's reasonable to expect that this might not be the last of the Libra-related hearings for Zuckerberg? It's definitely reasonable, but I think something else to watch for is whether Libra might arrive at some sort of compromise that that gets around these hearings or appeases regulators. Um, There's been some talk of um, potential changes to how Libra's structured um, that would make it a little bit less like Libra's coming out with its own uh, currency, um, acting less like a central bank, and that's something that's really scared um, regulators around the world. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for letting me interrupt you. Thanks for having me. All right. Back to our regular podcast programming. Well, that answered some of our questions and uh, left us with some new ones. Uh, (laughs) But I'm sure we'll be hearing more about Libra in in the weeks and months to come. Mike, what else is happening in the news? Uh, Well, Lauren, I have a question for you because you reviewed the new Samsung Galaxy Fold this week, and we would love to hear your thoughts on it. This is the infamous folding smartphone that Samsung debuted back in April of this year. Uh, It was supposed to arrive like the middle of the summer, several months ago, but when Samsung shipped out the first units to reviewers and the tech press, more than a few of them broke. There were problems with the broken screen because the thing folds and has a very complicated mechanism and a very delicate screen. There were some other problems with it. But now Samsung says it has fixed all the problems with the phone. So Lauren, I want to ask you, and yes, this is a very layered question. Have they fixed the problems with the fold? Was layered meant to be a pun, a pun there? Because it's because it's layers of polymer that the... No, I'm that gonna, was I'm so just, good. I'm going to say sure. All yes. right, just go with it. Yes, <laughs> yes and. Yes and. <laughs> okay. Yes, Samsung finally shipped this phone in September, started shipping it in September. And so we obtained a review unit at the end of September and I have been using it intermittently since then. And I say intermittently because we've been reviewing other phones. I also have an iPhone that I've been using because I use iMessage a lot for my communications. There was one four day business trip I went on that I just didn't feel like carrying yet another device, especially one that weighs nearly 10 ounces in my bag. So I left the fold at home. That said, I've had it with me for a good portion of a month, and it has not broken. I have just thrown it into my shoulder bag. I'm sure there's all kinds of junk in there. It's like a Mary Poppins bag, right? There's like food bits and coins and (laughs) dribbles of water from my water bottle and like God knows what else in there. And I totally disobeyed all of the rules that Samsung put with this new Fold. And it's still still kicking. The screen is not malfunctioning. Wait, 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 wait. We shouldn't congratulate Samsung too, too much for making a phone that simply did not break after one month. That sounds like a minimum viable product. I want to hear about the utility of this thing. It has a giant unfolding screen. Did you find that it changed your life? Were you able to do cool new things with it? Would you use it? I personally would not pay nearly $2,000 for this phone. And that's because it does certain things really well. But those things that it does really well are essentially what a seven inch tablet would do 
really well in your life. And then it's utility as a phone. And maybe I sound old because I'm still saying, I still make a lot of phone calls, everybody. You know, I still have to text message a lot. And text messaging on the 4.6 inch display is just as awkward as text messaging on a 7.3 inch display, which is what it unfolds to. Like all those basic things still aren't that great. And as I know in the review on wired.com, Normally, I take a phone with me when I go for a hike or a run, and it just it just wasn't working with the Galaxy Fold. Like, it wouldn't fit into my pants pocket, and I didn't want to carry it in my hand because it's awkward when it's closed. It feels like a TV remote. So, like, there are just certain basic things that it made me really appreciate. As much as we say now that we're tired of the boring glass rectangular slabs we have in our hands that have been around for a decade now, they're pretty magical when you think about it. Now, that said, I do give credit to Samsung for shipping this thing. They've been working on this flexible polymer, you know, flexible OLED display for a long time. It is shipping. It's the first, I think, commercially viable folding phone. And there are moments when it's kind of magical. Like I, I took a really long flight last night and I grabbed the thing out of my bag and opened it and started using it like a Kindle. And I was like, this is pretty cool. And I've been using it as a Kindle for, I don't know, a couple of weeks now. And then, and then like when you're done with it, you just kind of slam it shut and throw it into your bag again. Like that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, but a Kindle costs like $80. I know, a Kindle this phone costs, like, costs 1900 and You can't change. really I know you can't really compare it to a Kindle cuz <laughs> you could also just like slide a Kindle into your bag really easily. And there were some moments when I would start um, to navigate somewhere and I would start I would initiate the map search on the small screen and then I would unfold it and it would be on a much larger display. It sort of opens automatically to certain apps that have been optimized for the UI. Cool. So there are like these moments that hint there. They hint at the future, but the future is going to be, it's going to be awkward while we get there. You know what else can unfold into a large map? A map. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> a paper map. You can get it at a gas station for like $2. Well, you can read Lauren's review of yeah. the Samsung Galaxy Fold on Wired.com. I believe the rating you give it was a 5 out of 10. Is that right? 5 out of 10, which is not bad, but it's not good. Right. It's right down the middle. Mm-hmm. Kind of like the seam going down the middle <laughs> of the Galaxy Fold. Uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk to Emma Gray Ellis all about the YouTubers unionizing. Welcome back. Now we are joined by Emma Gray Ellis, a staff writer at Wired who specializes in internet culture and propaganda. Emma's latest article is called YouTubers Must Unionize No Matter What Google Says. She introduces us to some of the key players around the world and how they are facing off against the largest video platform on earth. Welcome, Emma. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Where did the YouTube unionizing movement come from? So about three years ago, uh, Hank Green, who's a really well-respected person on the platform, he's been there since the beginning, he's one of the founders of VidCon, started something called the Internet Creators Guild, which was supposed to address, basically, creators uh, live all over the world, they live all over the country, they're very disconnected, and they have a lot of shared interests. Um, And so that was an attempt to sort of pull them all together and... Uh, make sure that they had a voice at the table when um, YouTube was making platform engineering decisions that would affect the way that they did their jobs. That failed this summer and so and has sort of been replaced by uh, a YouTuber's union, which is less union in actuality than movement, calling itself a union and partnering with unions. Um, run by a man named Jorg Sprave, who makes uh, fantastic 
sli- high-powered slingshot weapons in the woods of Germany. Hello and welcome to the Slingshot Channel. My name is Jörg and I would like to take you on a strange journey to the wonderful world of rubber-based launchers. He's a delight, uh, and uh, and so basically, this this new movement has come forward to address uh, concerns about transparency and uh, demonetization. What are some of the demands that these YouTubers are making? So the big ones are uh, that they don't actually know what YouTube's rules are as such. There's uh, a very long employee handbook apparently that YouTube gives out to its human raiders who are some of the people who are making decisions whether something's appropriate on on the platform uh and they know that it exists because it's been leaked but creators don't have access to it at all and so they're just working off the sort of publicly available um guidelines on the web that you or i could see the terms of service community guidelines and often find that that's inadequate for predicting whether or not something will be demonetized or not and so they'd like to know what the real rules are that they're being judged against, which I think is fair. And uh, the other thing that they'd like is um, some people are advocating for uh, decoupling monetization from advertising, because if in order to make money on YouTube, you need to be uh, someone that Johnson & Johnson or Pepsi would like to work with that puts a, some real limits on what kind of content that you might have. And so no religion, no sex, no, you know, queer content, which has been a huge problem on the platform. And so, uh, yeah, the biggest demands are transparency, uh, a more equitable approach to monetization. And the other thing that people really hate is that when you do get something demonetized, you get a form email from an algorithm and you have no real way to appeal. <laughs> well, you, you can send an appeal, but you're not able to advocate for yourself. Um, in any way, because you're talking to a machine. And uh, the only way that people have had success is either through, you know, spending many hours of labor combing through their own content to try to figure out where exactly they made some kind of rule violation, because it doesn't tell you what rule you broke. It's just like, sorry, we had to demonetize you. Um, And then uh, that leaves them in this kind of limbo where all of a sudden you're retroactively informed that you've been working for free for the past week. Um, but YouTube's still making money in certain ways from it, right? Even if there's not ads on it, it's still keeping people on the platform. Mm-hmm. And those engagement metrics are how they ultimately make their business run. And so it's a they see it as a pretty unbalanced system. Talk about that decoupling of advertising for monetization. What does that mean exactly? Does that mean that the creators would be able to make money in other ways that doesn't have to do with advertising or that the advertising would actually not be so specific to certain creators? Mm. So the there was a period of time where you were paid for your watch time. Um, and so some creators would like to go back to that system. Um, in actuality, and one of the reasons why this is so complicated is that most creators are not making money only from advertising. They're also making money on Patreon or merch sales or their work on other platforms. Um, and so, the, but they would like the option to make money without having to rely solely on whether or not they're marketable to advertisers. Which is not to say that the people who have ad, ads run on their 
uh, video shouldn't make more. I don't think anyone's saying that. Like, everyone knows that advertising is a big way that they, we support online platform businesses at large. It just shouldn't maybe be the only option for people. So when you think about YouTube as creating this entirely new class of labor where people are perhaps making their entire living on the platform, mm-hmm. making videos, these demands start to seem pretty reasonable, at sure. least to me, right? Like, yeah. if you're if you're doing this to make a living, you should probably have some transparency in terms of uh, when you will or won't get paid. Mm-hmm. How is YouTube responding to this? Do they also see this as reasonable or have they sort of poo-pooed the idea? It's challenging because their responses have been, uh, according to experts, a little different about whether they're talking about creators in the U.S. versus the EU. Um, the In the EU, they've actually on occasion encouraged people to to you know act collectively to push back against uh, big changes like GDPR, which they have other concerns. YouTube has other concerns about. Um, in the U.S., they when they go to Capitol Hill, they sort of never talk about creators uh, is is what I've heard from from the experts that I've talked to. They sort of act as if they don't exist. Um, in an immediate way, the way that YouTube is responding by, is by there was supposed to be a, a big meeting between uh, the YouTubers Union representatives, including uh, Slingshot Master York Sprave. Uh, <laughs> and it was supposed to be on the 22nd. Um, and then at the last minute, they decided that no YouTubers would be welcome at the meeting at all. And so the unions could still come um, but no creators could. Um, and so I think that that's sort of indicative of the way that they've been dealing with this. They're very willing to talk to creators, they say, and, and I think that they probably do have a vested interest in creator success, but um, certainly they're not really playing ball here. Let's take a quick break and we'll come back with more from Emma. All right, welcome back. We are talking with Wired writer Emma Gray Ellis about the YouTubers unionization movement and what it means for the video giant. Uh, so I have one more question about sort of the the, the unionization and how that's going to work. Because sure. um, YouTubers, the, the creators on the platform, they're not employees. They're independent contractors, if anything. Um, in what ways is this relationship different from like more traditional media? Like, for example, the writers and actors on television shows that might be on NBC or ABC, because we know that there are unions for for writers, there are unions for actors. So how is this situation different from that? One of the things that's interesting is that, at least in the U.S., uh, the union that's most interested in working with YouTube creators is actually SAG-AFTRA. Uh, and so, um, that's the Screen Actors Guild. The Screen Actors mm-hmm. Guild, yes, um, which includes most of Hollywood. Uh, and there's a baked-in relationship with there because a lot of YouTubers are either musicians or actors on the side, or or have aspirations to be. Um, the biggest the biggest challenge for them is that, as you say, this, these are not you know people who are working for a studio. The and so they're not they're not technically classified as employees. Um, many of them are in a way small business owners, which is a challenge for unionizing of any kind because it usually doesn't include people in management. Um, and a lot of these creators do have assistants or editors in their employ. Um, but the other thing is that you know unionizing takes. Uh, in-person communication in a lot, or it's much easier that way. And these people are scattered across the globe. And so um, 
from what I understand, the Screen Actors Guild now is doing a bunch of research and uh, on on just how they could bring uh, creators into this fold. Um, but but yeah, it's the the fact that they don't have um, that their labor is is unprecedented and in form it means that they're not captured by a lot of the contracts or even laws that we currently have. And even if they were to be represented by SAG, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to get more information or transparency from YouTube on how it's managing its platform and how algorithms are working and content is being demonetized and all of that. Right. That would all be on, like the the benefit of ha- of them being in a union would be just that that unions are powerful and might be more successful in pressuring Google to make changes than one lone person, mm-hmm. um, particularly because I think a lot of people are hesitant to to speak out against giant corporations like Google uh, and and risk those relationships that they rely on um, all by themselves. That's really scary. And so un- the unions would hypothetically step in and, and sort of spread out any kind of response that there ended up being. Uh, so I have a question about the feasibility of, of these demands that the the folks, the creators are are asking for. So like how many hours of video is uploaded to YouTube every day? Is it like a million? Or? I think, you know, there's billions of videos. And so it's got to be more than that. Okay. So they're asking for transparency. So they're mm-hmm. asking that their videos are uh, screened for objectionable stuff. And here's the list of objectionable stuff. And if it meets these criteria, then it can go out on the platform and it can start making them money. Sure. So that would obviously create a bottleneck on YouTube side, mm-hmm. which would probably delay the publication of these videos or delay their viewability. Uh, or like, how is that even possible for YouTube to manage these demands if they're legally required to do so? I, I think that's a really good question. Uh, if a regular union employer relationship is is checkers, this is 3D chess. The and like, there are so so many challenges to actually doing this, and that's and that's what a lot of people who work for YouTube and even people who don't will say is that we're we're working on a scale and social impact that has no precedent anywhere in the world ever. Um, and and I think that you're right that if it becomes incumbent on YouTube to review every single video, not by algorithm, that it's basically impossible. Um, I think the demands that are feasible is just letting creators into the conversation more. If there's going to be engineering decisions that affect the platform, they should have a voice. But I think that it's a little impractical to assume that that YouTube is suddenly going to have a, a perfect answer to this. I'm curious if this has implications beyond YouTube. I mean, I'm thinking of so many other platforms that have created these new types of work. There are, you know, influencers on Instagram. There are gig economy workers mm-hmm. for platforms like, you know, Amazon or Uber. Um, are there potential outcomes that sort of extend beyond the creator class of YouTube here? Uh, maybe I think what's what's maybe uh, has been talked about more is whether the legal changes around the gig economy will also apply to creators. Mm. Um, and so in California, which is YouTube's home state, um, there's some new legislation uh, being worked on currently uh, that's supposed to give greater protections to gig economy workers. And that's specifically talking about Uber and Lyft drivers um, for the most part, and other other more conventional forms of gig economy, but. Um, there's certainly interest um, in in these spaces, but to see whether whether um, creators might qualify in some cases, which would be um, a big legal headache for 
everyone, uh, and particularly YouTube, right? Because all of a sudden, overnight, they have some, like, many millions of employees all of a sudden. That would change everything. And I think maybe not even be feasible or possible. But um, we'll see. It's, it's, it's such a new and evolving space that it's almost hard to know how these laws will be applied, and they'll probably have to do with you know, the case precedents that are established. Um, right now, a, a group of uh, queer creators are suing YouTube for discrimination in the algorithm and unfair demonetization. Um, and so that's another thing that will, be, that will be important to watch because it might be a harbinger of what's to come. Emma, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. And everyone can read Emma's story on Wired.com. Of course, Emma, do you want to stick around for recommendations? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right, we're back for recommendations. Emma, you are our guest this week, so you should start. Sounds good. Uh, My recommendation is Allie Ward's Ologies podcast. It is a delightful time where they invite uh, a, a scientist, an ologist of some sort, onto the podcast, and they have a, a fun time explaining their specialty. And all the scientists are unexpectedly funny, and it's great. Last week's episode was about spidroinology, which I may or may not be saying wrong. Wow. Uh, but it's the study of spiderweb silk, uh, which is incredibly valuable uh, and very strong. And I learned lots. Then when they pull the silk out, so they pull it out like floss. They don't squeeze it out like toothpaste. Okay. So all of the silks have to be pulled out. And when they pull that, the silk at the very end of a, of a tube going down from the gland that they make it to the outside, um, all the silk then behind it starts to get pulled out because it's very viscous. I want them real thick and juicy. Mm-hmm. On the trip down that tube, the shear forces. Wow. Mm-hmm. Learning so much already. Yeah, it's full of fun facts. You'll be able to tell your friends all about octopuses and cabinology, which is the study of cabins. What is uh, the study of octopuses called? Octopi? Is it octopi or octopuses? <laughs> See, these are the things we need to Octopodes. learn. Octopodes. What? It's Greek. Wow. <laughs> My mind is blown. Mike, what's yours? Uh, so I have, uh, I'm going to recommend a book. Uh, I was just on some travel and I read this book on my travels. Uh, it is a book by the television critic, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning television critic at The New Yorker, Emily Nussbaum. And the book is called I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution. It's a series of essays, profiles, and reviews from her writing in The New Yorker. There's also some new essays that she wrote just for the book. So if you are a fan of television, particularly bad television, things that people might call guilty pleasures, because as we know, there are no such thing as guilty pleasures, there are only pleasures, then you'll love this book because Emily is right there with you. She talks about her love for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, she does a whole um, a whole essay about Norman Lear and his sitcoms and how they revolutionized television in the 1970s. Um, There is a whole essay about Joan Rivers. uh, And actually, probably the best part of the book is this big, meaty essay sort of at the beginning of the second third that is about uh, the Me Too movement. And it's about what we do with the art of bad men. So like Harvey Weinstein movies, Woody Allen movies, Louis C.K.'s show, when people are exposed as bad actors, um, then what do we do with their art? Can we still appreciate it? Can we still study it? Should it disappear? Should it be held in amber? Uh, It's a fantastic essay in the middle of a fantastic book. I Like to Watch by Emily Nussbaum. 
It sounds great. It does. She's a fantastic writer. I love her work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think all of the awards that she's won are well-deserved. Ariel, what's your recommendation? Uh, well, if you have an Android phone, I would like to recommend that you check out Google's Digital Wellbeing Experiments. These are brand new this week. Um, and they're a set of little tools that you can try on your phone to minimize distraction or help you focus on the things you care about on your phone and not focus on the things that drive you crazy. Um, I don't have an Android phone, so I haven't been able to test these myself, but the ideas I think are really, really good. One of them that I liked is called Postbox, and it just batches all your notifications and then delivers them at intervals that you set for yourself, kind of like the postman, like delivering all your mail like once a day. So the idea is that you you decide the times, but then you know everything just shows up at once, and you don't have to be like constantly checking your phone or uh, constantly seeing your screen light up. Um, these are not things that Google has put a lot of energy behind in terms of promoting them. They are labeled experiments. Um, but I think that's cool because some of them like are a little bit more radical. Some of them are a little less polished and Google, it seems to be very open to feedback on how people want to use their phones. So, um, give it a try. I would also love to hear if anyone tries it out and has thoughts on it, like send me a tweet. I'm curious. Um, but I think it's a good idea. Uh, I'm especially looking forward to this because as an Android phone user, I've been using some of the digital well-being tools that are new to Android 10. Um, there's there's one that I have turned on right now, which makes my phone go uh, monochrome, black and white at 11 p.m. And it actually works. <laughs> it's like I'm sitting there staring at Twitter and then my phone just all of a sudden all the color disappears and it takes me like a minute to realize it. I'm like, oh, I need to put this down. And it's been really great. I also have app timers on for all of my social media accounts and I'm ringing the bell every single day. So I'm trying to get better about it. So I'm really looking forward to it. I once tried an app called Daywise. Admittedly, I did not use it for very long. I only used it for a few days, but it was on an Android phone. And it did the same thing. It batched your notifications and then would deliver them at times you set. So if you said, I want to see them all at three o'clock, which is you know when you take a break and go grab a coffee or something like that. Um, and I found it really helpful for the brief period of time I used it. Mm. Uh, well, what is your recommendation, Lauren? My recommendation is also a book by a writer for The New Yorker. Uh-oh. The New Yorker happens to be our sister <laughs> publication, in case anybody's wondering. Both Wired and The New Yorker are owned by Condé Nast. But I swear Mike and I did not coordinate this. My recommendation is Catching Kill, which is a new book by Ronan Farrow, who was a reporter for NBC News and he was reporting, he and Rich McHugh, a producer for NBC News, were reporting for several months on uh, Harvey Weinstein and sexual misconduct and sexual uh, abuse by uh, on the part of Harvey Weinstein. And when NBC News declined to run the package as part of its news program, Ronan then uh, reported for The New Yorker instead. And The New Yorker ran a story that ultimately became a Pulitzer Prize winning story. And Ronan chronicles his um, reporting experience through this book. It's a fantastic read. I, I literally could not put it down as I was uh, on a six-hour flight last night. This is when I was reading on the Galaxy Fold, <laughs> the bizarre Galaxy Fold, which I will be returning shortly. Uh, and it's just a, it's a really fantastic read about, um, basically it's about abuse of power 
And you've probably read some of the excerpts online at this point. They ran in Vanity Fair. They ran in other places. But when you read those excerpts, it seems like each story is kind of its own disparate story. And when you read the book, it really brings all of the stories together in a way that um, it just spins this web to bring it back to the spider webs. (laughs) It spins this web of how everybody, I know, this sort of upper echelon of uh, politics and media in New York are like intertwined and uh, well and also in Hollywood and um, it's just it's great I'm not doing it justice but it's great I also happen to see uh, when I was in New York last week saw Ronan in conversation with Rebecca Traster a New York magazine columnist and they talked about the book and that was a great conversation although Ronan you showed up a little late and I had I had to unfortunately I had to leave I couldn't stay for the whole thing but he does say in the book that he runs late so there you go so since we're both owned by Condé Nast you know how like the New Yorker has those cool tote bags uh-huh. that everybody has. How mm-hmm. come How come we don't have our own tote bags? Like, Would our podcast listeners like wired Gadget Lab tote bags? I mean, because we have, okay, we have like a Gadget Lab silkscreen kit uh-huh. that you can make the big G and you uh-huh. put it on a tote bag. So maybe we should tell people to send us tote bags and then we'll silkscreen them for them and yeah. then send them back. No, but then we have to ship them back. Why don't we just do this? If you guys want tote bags from the Gadget Lab, clamor for yeah. it on Twitter. Send us messages. All of our emails are out there just send us messages and, and then we'll make a case for it the big g yeah <laughs> i'll tweet a picture of it so you can see it speaking of twitter emma what 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 is your twitter handle how can it's people find you at emma gray ellis gray is spelled with an e and lauren i'm at lauren good also with an e at the end i am at part esoteric there is an e in there as well <laughs> <laughs> i am at snack fight guess what there's no, no e. e, but you have an E in your regular name. I do, yes. Uh, so if you have enjoyed this episode, or even if you have other feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcast app slash platform of choice. Really, we love to hear it, and it helps other people find the show who might enjoy the show. And in the meantime, you can always tweet at all of us at Gadget Lab, which is the handle for our news section of Wired.com and the way that we communicate with fans of the show. And that's it for this week. Thank you, Emma. Good night and good luck. Good luck.